Well, welcome again to City Life. You can grab your Chick-fil-A on the way to the Stellmans tonight, right? If you didn't know about it on the way in, maybe you can grab some lawn chairs on the way home. I'll bring some extras so we can all just hang out around the fire, uh, eat s'mores, right? I'll chase Raj around the lawn the entire time. But it'll be good. It'll be a good time. But, uh, yeah, so that's at the Stellmans. Again, they're right there if you need the address afterwards. But uh, grab some food on the way, maybe some Chick-fil-A because we do church on Saturday, right? We can do that. Right, we can do that. But we are in actually in a series, a sermon series called Why Do Be. Maybe it's your first time here in a while. Maybe it's your first time here ever. Welcome. But we are in a series called Why Do Be. And we are going to be in Acts chapter 1 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn in Scripture to Acts chapter 1. But uh, to get us rolling tonight, uh, to set the mood, maybe some people would lighten the mood with uh, man walks into bar jokes. Right, Like a man walks into the bar and then there's a story. Last week, we lightened the mood with talking about a man who nearly walked into a bear. And it didn't seem appropriate at that point in the sermon to show the video, but then I realized I can just do it next week. It's what you do when you're the lead pastor. And it ties into what we're talking about. So I actually wanted to show this video of a man. Mark Waldo yeah, in uh, Sky Five. Uh, uh, well, this, this is very interesting. <laughs> Apparently the bears decided yeah, that's to right. you know, move around. Oh, garbage cans are out too. Mm, yeah, just something. a couple of minutes ago, the bear left the clearing in the backyard there, and he made his way over to the driveway over on Mayfield. He came down that driveway, down Mayfield, and now he's on Briggs, and now it looks like he's got turning into another driveway here. We're going to kind of maneuver around and see if we can get another shot of him. Um, but, uh, yeah, he a definitely. Oh, right there. Oh, 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 okay, man. we got someone uh, resident there. <laughs> he yeah. just saw the bear. Oh. So that one happened a couple years ago. I actually showed that in church about three years ago, talking about uh, situational awareness. And uh, this one, however, happened last week. go hop in the car with him. <laughs> so practically speaking, practically speaking, uh, we talked last week about how Jesus looked up, and that's how he saw Zacchaeus, and that's how he knew to, to single Zacchaeus out and minister to Zacchaeus. And so practically speaking, as well, if, if you're not looking up, apparently you never know when a bear is around you. So as men, right, going to Triple R Ranch, you know, down there in the heart of Chesapeake, we can keep our eyes peeled uh, next Friday because we'll be heading out there. And, again, I think they mentioned it, but if you want to register, it's citylifeva.com slash men's retreat. So you might see a bear. Who knows? Maybe we'll see some bears. But spiritually speaking, we talked last week about if you're not looking up, if you're not looking around, if you're absorbed in the 12 square inches of your phone, right, sometimes we'll miss the flesh and blood that we're called to love. We'll, we'll miss the flesh and blood right next to us that God wants us to seek and save. It's not about physical danger like bears, but spiritually speaking, it's about the danger of missing our calling and our purpose and our mission in life. Because last week, we looked at Jesus' declarative statement on his mission in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Where after, at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, he says, I came to seek and save the lost. And Pastor Fred is going through the, the same series in Newport News. So he also preached on Jesus' why last weekend in Newport News. So if you want to double down, you want to get twice the content. We're not preaching the same sermon, but we are preaching on the same vision. So you can double down on that at the podcast or the website. But the question we asked at both campuses is, is Jesus' why my why? Is his purpose for coming 
my purpose for living. And again, it's hard to seek and save when we don't look up and see what's right next to us and what's around us. But that's not the only statement made by Jesus at the heart of this series. There's actually three declarative statements made by Jesus that make up the why do be. And so we get the why from Luke 19.10, again, where Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. How do we do that? And then we get the do, which comes from Matthew 16.18 where Jesus declares, I will build my church. And we're going to dig into that tonight. Then maybe you ask how, and and we see that we are called to be. And this is from Jesus' statement to his disciples, or about his disciples, in John 13, 35, that by this, everyone will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. We're called to be and become people of love and people of virtue. And you can make this practical. If you play these backwards as a path forward, this statement that when I become who I'm supposed to be, right, love and virtue, I can accomplish all I was created to do, building the church, and I can fulfill why Jesus came, which again, as we looked at last week, was to seek and save. But again, tonight I want to look at this second box, what we're called to do, which in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says these words, I will build my church. But I want to give you context for that verse as well tonight because he's speaking to his disciples. Peter had just said, all these people are saying you're Elijah. These people are saying you're a prophet. And Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? A question we all should answer for ourselves. And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one, the one we've been waiting for. And from that, it says, Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So this passage in its entirety is worthy of its own study and its own sermon. But I want to focus on Jesus' five-word declaration, I will build my church. Because Jesus speaks again and again in the Gospels about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. It was the subject of his sermon on the mount. It was the subject of so many of his parables. Really, it was the focus of his ministry. And here he says that the keys to the kingdom have been handed to the church. And from here in the New Testament, we see that a new recurring theme is the body of Christ. Because Jesus goes on building his church, just like he said he would in Matthew 16, and he does it through his body. Through his hands and feet, his church in the book of Acts. And that's why I want to turn to Acts chapter 1, where all of this begins. And so tonight we're going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And this is Luke speaking, the same Luke that wrote the gospel of Luke. So he says in my first book, referencing that gospel, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. And once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he has promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? 
And he replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It says, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? It's like, did you not see what just happened, right? <laughs> Duh. Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So we're going to dig into this text tonight. But last week we talked about uh, famous one-liners in movies, and kind of Princess Bride took the cake. There was probably a half dozen to a dozen that you guys just kept rattling off. But this week I want to get a little more specific because there are, are famous last words. You've got the poetic last words like in Blade Runner. All these moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain. You've got like boss-level last words like, like Ben Kenobi. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. You've got rallying last words like William Wallace and Braveheart shouting freedom and rallying these Scotsmen to fight like warrior poets and win their freedom. Or at the end of Saving Private Ryan, how old is that movie? Like 20 years old? So I'm not ruining it for anybody. Uh, Tom Hanks is dying and he looks at Private Ryan because all these men have sacrificed their lives to find him and seek him and save him. And he looks at him as he's breathing his dying breaths and he says, earn this, James, earn this. And those words would shape the rest of his life. Like we see James when he's older, and you can tell he's been carrying this weight. Did I earn it? Did I earn this sacrifice? You know what's powerful to me about the gospel is that in Jesus' dying breast from the cross, he didn't look out to his disciples and say, hey, earn this. No, he, he spoke about forgiveness, and a couple breaths later said, it is finished. Right? The price has been paid. There's no earning it. There's no earning your salvation. It's a free gift through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. So no man can boast. Jesus paid the cost. There's no earning it. No earning it. But we know that these weren't Jesus' last words because he wasn't done at the cross. Nor was he done speaking. Jesus rose from the grave. And it says in Acts 1 that he continued to minister in those days between the resurrection and the ascension. And these were, these make up his last words. And we see in the opening of Acts, and I want to look at these last words because the same way that we said last week that Jesus' why should be our why. And his reason for coming should be our reason for living. In the same way, his last commands should be our first concern. The things that Jesus was concerned about as he was leaving should be our first concern as his followers. And clearly, the focus and concern of Jesus as he spent his last time on earth was the commissioning, birthing, and building of the church. Again, Jesus lived with his why, which was to seek and save the lost. And as he left, he passed that focus onto the church. And that would be birthed, but on a global scale. Talking about seek and save the lost to the ends of the earth. And yet before Christ got to do and tell them what to do and tell them to go and do it, he says, pause, time out, wait. Right, it says in verses 4 through 5 that we read, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. In a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, this statement is what acts 
and the birth of the church is all about. This is the mission statement at the heart of Acts that the church runs with. Again, the why is seek and save to the ends of the earth, but then the question is, okay, how? But the verse reveals three hows, the power, the purpose, and the plan. And the power is the Holy Spirit. And the power comes first. It always comes first. The Old Testament says not by might, not by strength, but by the Spirit of God. Jesus says you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Yes, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, but he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus basically gives them the most important mission of all time. And then he says, wait, because the Holy Spirit is that important. That's the power. That's the fuel for the engine as we chase our calling as a church. But then we also get the purpose, the why, which is the exact same as last week. We're going to seek and save the lost. We're going to be witnesses, and we're going to do it to the ends of the earth. But then the question is, that's a pretty big plan. (laughs) What is the plan? How are we going to do this? And it's build the church. And I love that in this verse, the smallest common denominator, it's not a congregation, it's not a building, it's not even a community, but it's cities. The smallest common denominator in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. See, we don't build the church just for a congregation or a group of people. God's aim is bigger than that. God wants to change cities. God ultimately wants to reach the world. See, all saved and none perished. It's one of the reasons we're called City Life Church, not just Congregation Life Church, not just a group of people life church. No, we're, we're called to reach our city. Right? We aren't just called to do life in a service. We're called to do life out there serving our city. The letters in the New Testament, I always find it interesting that they weren't addressed to people in the church. They were addressed to the cities that they were in. Ephesus, Rome, Galatia, they're cities. When the angel addresses the disciples in Acts chapter 1, though, he doesn't call them world changers, right? He doesn't call them uh, uh, champions of faith. He calls them men of Galilee. <laughs> and Galilee was no metropolis, Galilee was like a bunch of tiny little fishing villages. So these were small town men of humble means. And you can imagine them thinking, wait, pause, time out, come back. You said change the world, right? And maybe you've got the same questions hearing all this. You got the wrong person. I'm from a small town. I'm small potatoes. How am I going to change the world? By not doing it alone, right? By not being a lone ranger. By making the me a we. Because the statement that we opened with, when I become who I'm supposed to be, I accomplish all I was created to do so I can fulfill why Jesus came. That's a powerful statement. But it's exponentially more powerful when we make that I a we. When we become who we're supposed to be, we can accomplish all we were created to do so we can fulfill why Jesus came. There's power in pronouns. And I don't just say that as a an old cranky English major, right? There's power in pronouns, and our culture has a pronoun problem because we read Acts 1.8, and we hear, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses, and we make it about me, right? And I like that. I'm going to receive power. Maybe it'll be like Thor or Captain America, right? No, but it's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And this is all right and good. We are called to have a relationship with God, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? Knowing Jesus Christ, seeing his goodness in this life. There should be a, a, a good and, and biblical expectation that we will experience God and the Holy Spirit on a subjective, personal level. But then it says, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And it's like, wait a second, you talking just me? <laughs> like, like me, singular? 
And then we, it seems too big, so I think sometimes we'll just push it to the side. Like, it's too big. We read the Great Commission, and we kind of just push it to the back of our minds. How could I make disciples of all the nations? But it's not a me being called. It's a we. Again, we have a pronoun problem. There are 4,700 verses, about 2,700 in the Hebrew and about 2,000 in the Greek that's, that use the word you plural, right? Speaking to y'all, right, if, from around here. But in the English, Bibles, they're translated you. So we can read those verses, and the reader can think that it's directed to the individual rather than the Christian community. And it's a trap in the translation, especially for our individualistic culture, because as a result, Christian, Christianity can become the religion of the individual. Once you get saved, you've checked that box. I'm on my way to heaven. My assurance of salvation is good. I'm headed to my finish line. Faith becomes about me, myself, and I. Again, it's a pronoun problem. Paul warns Timothy. I've been reading through his, his letters to Titus and Timothy because it's, it's advice for pastors. And, and he, he tells Timothy to rightly divide and rightly handle the word of truth. So what's implied in that statement is you can incorrectly handle the Bible. And there's many ways we can do that. But one sure way we do that is to make the Bible about me. Now, it, it can it can address your life and speak into your life, but the Bible is first and foremost about a he, Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, the Bible points to Jesus, not me. And second, the Bible addresses a we, the bride of Christ that he came to save, right, the church. And then, yes, it, it can speak to me. But this you addressed in Acts 1.8 shouldn't be translated as you in the singular. Again, he's saying, if he was from around here, y'all, y'all are, are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and y'all are going to go out and change the world. So the disciples return to Jerusalem with this group identity, obeying this command that they get in verse 4 to wait. And I think sometimes when we think of waiting, it's passive. Or when we think of waiting, it's like I'm just going to sit back on my couch and twiddle my thumbs and, and wait for something to happen. But we see that the, the disciples got to doing. They got to their due. They started building and organizing the church and I love that among them at the outset of the church, Luke mentions that there were women present because the culture at that time had a pronoun problem with she. <laughs> didn't recognize women, didn't uh, recognize the value of women, the input of women. And I love that Luke again and again in his gospel mentions the, peop the women that were present at Jesus' ministry, the women that were present at the birth of the church. And um, I bring that up because notable among the women was Mary, the mother of God, was present with them. And as one theologian put it, Mary not only gave birth to her son, she also assisted in the birth of the church. You know, before the Holy Spirit came, the church was conceived and born in Acts chapter 1. It was taking shape. They got busy working on structure, selecting a new apostle to replace Judas. And then the Holy Spirit comes. Pastor Fred said this a couple weeks ago in Newport News, but the work of the Holy Spirit is personally transformational. Again, the Holy Spirit should do work in all of our lives. Right? The Holy Spirit wants to do some rearranging, some perspective shifting, so we see God the way we should, waking giftings and purposes and callings. But for the work to be effectively missional, we need the church. We have to build the church. Jesus' last concern should be our first concern. So I want to spend the rest of our time tonight asking the question, how do we know if we're doing it well? We've got a service. People show up, right? Do we have a good church? And... Uh, I went to a, an appointment with Raj on Monday, 
and they wanted to test his brain, right? So what are they going to like cut his brain open, look at it, take some MRIs? But the doctor just was like messing with his fingers, did the old school knee thing, right? <laughs> I still don't understand that, but apparently it tests your brain. And then he had Raj run, which Raj has no problem doing to see his balance. And with these seemingly random tests, he was testing Raj's brain, like seeing how his brain was functioning. And in the same way, these three ways can test the health of the heart of a church. And there's three. And you've probably heard these before if you've been coming to City Life for any time, but encountering God's presence, embracing God's family, and engaging God's mission. If you're a part of a healthy church, these three things will be happening. And we see these as the church is being birthed in the book of Acts. Like Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, outside of maybe Moses and the Israelites at Sinai, is the most powerful account we have of God encountering his people, the Holy Spirit coming. And similarly, we should live with the expectation that, like we say from Psalms, that we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. But not just that, we'll hear the voice of God, witness the power of God, see a move of God here in the land of the living. But secondly... We should see people embracing God's family. And we see this immediately following Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, amen, to that, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. The message version combines those middle two and just calls it the life together. There is a life together we're called to if we're a biblical part of a church. Not solo Christianity with a service mixed in on the weekend. There's a life together we're called to. Why life groups are key, ran, seemingly random stuff like us getting together at the Stellmans. No, the disciples were doing that like every day. <laughs> Coming together, breaking bread together. They were embracing God's family. And then thirdly, people will engage God's mission. I don't even have to point to a verse in Acts. It's the entire book of Acts, right? Acts chapter 4, they're meeting all the needs amidst their community. Acts chapter 5, they go out and they're healing people out in the neighborhood. Acts chapter 6, they're taking care of widows. All throughout the birth of the church, as the church is being built, we see that foundational in the birth of the church is people engaging God's mission. We're going to look at each of these three, but again, encounter, embrace, engage. Maybe you're like, I'm going to forget those words as soon as I walk out here tonight. Well, let me tell you three easy ways that we can apply that every time we come to church. And it's simply perspective. It's where we're looking. And I would say that we need to look up, look around, and look out. And sure, when we come to church, we should also look in, but we don't have any problem looking in. right? Like That's our go-to function. Let me look at my life Look at what needs to change in my life, how good I'm doing. The gravitational pull of our flesh is always to look in. We're the man with the phone walking into a bear. Like that's, <laughs> that's most of our lives. We have no problem navel-gazing, right? That's, that's us. But again, uh, uh, <laughs> but hear me on this. There, there's a work that God wants to do in each one of us individually when we come to church. There's a, a, something that Holy Spirit wants to do in each one of us through the church. We should certainly look in, but my point is it becomes a problem when it's the only focus, me, myself, and I. The focus to look solely inward, though, is like the, the cry of our culture, and that's how we get the perspective when we go to church of feed me, entertain me, help me consume. But we're called to more than just engaging and entertaining ourselves. Again, a healthy church 
and a healthy church member will see these three things, encountering God's presence, embracing his family, and engaging his mission. And again, it's an adjustment in perspective. So there's three ways of looking. The first is look up. So, I mean, we can just look up right now. The ceiling is beautiful. I know if I don't preach well, people just start looking at the ceiling and counting planks because it's beautiful and it's got great acoustics. But I don't share that because I want to talk about the ceiling, but because the church isn't about the audience. It's not about the people on the stage. It's not about the people in the pews. It's first and foremost about God. He is the object of our worship. He is the audience of one. And as a, as a pastor and as, a, I guess, a good person, I use my filter a lot. You know, like when you want to say something, but you bite your tongue. And there's a story, and I find it funny because I don't know if you've ever heard of Francis Chan, heard him speak, watched, like, his life group videos or any of that. He seems like genuinely the nicest man on the planet. Like, since Jesus ascended, Francis Chan might be the nicest guy. But there's a story that he told, so it must have happened, where he, he used to pastor a church, and somebody came up to him after the service and was like, I don't, wasn't really feeling worship. Like, I didn't like the songs. And he just looked him in the face and said, oh, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. Right? <laughs> I don't know if I would ever have the guts to just say that to somebody attending my church. But the point is that God is the object of our worship. He's the audience of one. And, and he's not our audience like, Raj loves to go to the zoo, right? Like, we don't throw him in the cage with the tiger. There's a barrier. But with God, that's not it, right? We look to God so that we can have an encounter with God. And at church, we should assess its health by asking these questions. Are people encountering God's presence? Are people experiencing God as a living presence and an active voice? Is there a sense of growing intimacy between God and the people of the church? Look, what matters most to me in a service isn't what happens on the stage. Worship, and my word hopefully will be excellent because we want to give God our, our best. But if worship flopped, my sermon flopped, but God did a work in each heart here, that's a win. That's a success. It's not about what happens on the stage. It's what happens in each one of our hearts. So just know that nobody steps on this stage. Tara didn't step on the stage tonight. I don't step on this stage tonight so you can be entertained. We come on the stage so you can have an encounter with God. Like technically, in planning center, right, Tara's the worship leader. I'm the pastor. And there's the blue shirts. Shout out to the blue shirts. We love you, blue shirts. That's Saturday Life team, right? Those are what a normal church would call ushers. But we call it the Saturday Life team. SLT, you're thinking, oh, is that kind of some kind of sandwich? No, those are our ushers. Those are our ushers. But really, biblically speaking, I... I should be an usher. Tara should be an usher. We should be ushering you into God's presence so that you can have an encounter with him. Entertainment is good. Laughter is good. I showed a video of a guy nearly walking into a bear, and we laughed, and that's great, right? Entertainment is not bad, but the church is created to encounter God's presence, and if it fails at that, it fails. But the second act of looking is look around. You can look around you now. Right? We're surrounded by people that are like us, We're surrounded by people that are nothing like us. (laughs) Let's be serious. I don't know if you've ever looked around church. I remember when I first got saved, I looked around. I was like, if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus and the church, I don't know that I'd be friends with anybody in here. (laughs) But we all follow Christ. We all love Jesus. But there's all different life experiences. I'll still be friends with you, Alice. (laughs) Different stages of life. There's, There's so much to learn. So in church, we're not supposed to just learn from from me in pews in rows no we're supposed to form circles that are smaller where we learn from one another and we rightly divide the word of truth together the church isn't just called to sit in rows 
in pews, but in circles. This is why life groups are so key. Going to men's retreat, making friends, we start meeting up for coffee regularly are so key. Because, yes, God calls us to build the church, but God also calls us in a way to shrink the church. It's how we embrace God's family and the community he's given us. In the Apostles' Creed, it, it speaks to the Catholic church, not capital C, but lowercase c, speaking to the church universal, right? Church all over the world, church growing, but it also speaks to the communion of saints, which is, again, relationship with one another. I've shared it before, but the first thing that Steph and I did when we became husband and wife, before we were even declared husband and wife, before we had our first kiss, we took communion together. And I point to that wedding moment because as the bride of Christ, we're called to have communion with one another. Covenant commitment, communion with one another. But if we take the analogy further, a lot of people are content dating the church. We have interest, but we don't invest. And I'm not talking just money. I'm talking time, love, <laughs> relations, investing in relationship. We love to feed our cravings and curiosity without commitment. And I'm not just speaking to the, how it's wildly evident in the world with our relationships and sexuality. You see it in the church as a people when we worship on the weekend but never embrace the family of faith. It can be like Facebook levels of relationship where you know 100 people here, but you don't really know anybody. 100 people know you, but nobody really knows you. You know, a healthy church will be marked by committed, deep relationships with one another. Not with everybody, but with somebody where you're chasing and following Christ and building the church together. A healthy church will ask the questions, are people finding an appetite and passion for community? Are people building meaningful relationships with others? Are people who have been disappointed or hurt by past churches trusting church community again? Raj has delays, right? It's one of the reasons we were at the, the brain doctor on Monday, because he's He's behind. He's like four years old, but cognitively he's about a two-year-old. But that didn't surprise Steph and I, right? They, they let us know, and it's been proven by science, that when you're not a part of a family and those connections aren't being made in your brain, and the longer you're in an orphanage, the more delayed you'll be. The math they use to just give us expectations as adoptive families is for every year that an orphan is in an orphanage and, and not in a family, there's about four to six months of delays, so you add that up, once a kid's been in an orphanage for years without a family, there can be years of developmental delays. I'm not just talking height and weight or walking and talking, but attachment with other people, being able to, to form appropriate relationships. And why do I share this? Because no matter what our family background is as believers, it's the same with our spiritual development. Without a family of faith, we have needs that aren't being met. There's development that's not happening. And we aren't called to live spiritually orphaned lives. We're called to embrace the family of faith, God's family. It's the second mark of a healthy church. The third mark of a healthy church is we will engage God's mission. How do we do this? We look out. Not like look out, there's a bear right there. Not like look out, duck, that kind of thing. But I'm literally talking like look out, like look outside. Like the, the hundreds of people that pass service every day, that's the kind of looking out. I'm talking about, right, that our focus isn't solely what happens in the four walls of the church during a church service, but there's a looking out. Every time we step out of those four doors, we're like, man, I'm stepping into God's mission. This Thursday, we again went out to College Square where we distribute bags of groceries to just this list of families in that neighborhood that have food anxiety. Excuse me. 
They don't, I, don't, I run, I swear. I went to that window and back. I'm out of breath. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> but these people in College Square, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And so we've given out hundreds and hundreds of bags. It's been spearheaded by Dave and Marina Letourneau sitting right there. They've got this heart for the community. We've rallied around them. But, hey, come on, Greg. That's my sermon illustration. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but my point is some people would ask, none of these people have ever come to City Life and made it their church home. Some people would look at me as a pastor and say, aren't you wasting your resources? Like you're not sowing it back into the church. But it's like we said last week. I had to look up the source. It's Archbishop William Temple who first said, the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members is the church. It's an organization that exists for its non-members. So the people that the church exists for are out there. Right? Like we come here because the Holy Spirit wants to do a work in us and equip us, but for what? The work of ministry. Engaging our mission, which is, again, out there. I've shared this quote before because it's about poop. It's the evangelist Louis Palau. He puts it this way. The church is like manure. Pile it together and it stinks up the neighborhood. Spread it out and it enriches the world. (laughs) We're called to be spread out. Yes, God wants us to shrink the church, but he also clearly wants us to build and expand the church and engage our mission. The church isn't called to sit together, but to walk together. Listen, listen, people who just sit together on the weekend, biblically, they're not part of the church. They're just part of a crowd. We aren't called to just follow the crowd into a weekend service. Jesus doesn't say, hey, follow, hey, stop what you're doing and follow the crowd. No, he says, follow me. We're called to follow Jesus. And to rehash the same stat that I said last week, there are 112 Personal encounters that Jesus has as he walks out his mission to seek and save the lost, only 10 of them happen in the temple or in their church. The rest of them happen out there as he was engaging his mission, the same mission that he's given us. Look, if you follow Jesus, you won't just engage a church service. You'll engage your mission. You won't just look in and look up and look around to the people in this room, but you'll begin to look out people in your neighborhoods, at your workplace, on your sports team, in your school hallway, that's where we look out to. So the question we should ask ourselves to gauge our heart and health is, are people being inspired to believe that God created them with unique abilities, spiritual gifts, and life experiences to build his church? Are people giving their lives to sharing the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ? Are people looking to the world to find the needs that God is calling them to meet? You know, if I could have the worship team come up, we're talking about building the church. We've talked about our why and our mission. We said it last week. We hear God say, hey, seek and save the lost. And we ask, how? He tells us, hey, build my church. We hear him say, build the church. And we think, how how are we going to do that? And he says, hey. Be people of virtue and love, right? They'll know you're my disciples and a part of my church because you love one another. And maybe you would say, how is is loving one another and loving people going to seek and save the lost? And we have to remember John 12 where Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And sure, that verse is talking about, because he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be crucified. He's speaking to, yes, he was literally going to be raised up on a cross. And through that, there was going to be a salvation and good news that draws all people to him. But also figuratively, right, we are the body of Christ. 
And we finally, when we finally build the church and rise up ourselves, Jesus will draw people unto him. So it's not going to be like Acts 1, where Jesus' risen body is walking around and ministering to people, but we are the body of Christ, his flesh and blood, his hands and feet, and we are called to minister and, and not just encounter him, not just embrace the people in this room, but as the people in this room engage our mission. And again, people won't see the risen Christ, but they'll see the body of Christ, the church lifting him up, not just with songs as we're about to do. Matter of fact, you can stand because we are about to praise and worship to close. But we worship him, like again, as it says in Romans 12, our everyday, ordinary lives, offering them up to him. Our conversations, our interactions, we praise and worship God with those things. So tonight I don't want to close by looking up. Again, seeking God's presence and encounter his Holy Spirit because the power always comes first. We talk about engaging our mission. Holy Spirit, we need you. We seek you and we praise you. But I'm also mindful what Tara was sharing earlier during worship that for some of us it might be hard to lift our hands up in worship because we're just holding on to mess. Maybe it's been a bad week, bad month, bad year. Maybe it's a habit you can't break. Maybe it's a relationship that seems broken. Maybe it's something that happened at work. It could be one of a ton of things. But if that's you and you're like, man, it's hard to praise. I've been there. Sometimes it's a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a psalm of lament, and I'm like, wait, I got to step into this psalm of praise over here? Those are those times I know I need to seek God's face. So if you need to pray about anything, I'm right here. The Hiltons are right here. Steph and Emily are right there. But we're going to worship God as we close. We're going to praise him because he didn't stand on or, or hang from that cross, look at us and say, earn it. No, he's earned everything we need. And we praise him for that tonight.